Hi, it's Lisa. Welcome back to The Healing Path, a podcast created to connect our broken hearts as we journey into honest conversations about grief and loss in our daily lives. Following the deaths of two of my children, I struggled for many years to fill the holes in my heart. I felt like I tried everything, prayer, meditation, therapy, coaching, reading, journaling, begging, waiting, you name it. Plus, I tried a few less productive approaches. And after two decades of continuing to grieve, it occurred to me that maybe I'd set the wrong goal. Instead of trying to feel better by filling those painful voids, I've learned that building a life around them is a much more worthy target. A major part of this approach is talking openly about what my grief is like and helping others to do the same so we don't have to keep it to ourselves. With this newfound permission to let all the parts of us be here, we may just feel more human and less like a robot on autopilot. So I created the Healing Path podcast with the hope that sharing our stories in a mutually compassionate environment will help us to stop working so hard to hide our scars from ourselves and others and start wearing them proudly as the medals of love that they are. So thank you for joining this episode of The Healing Path. Today, I'm chatting about a post that's called The Big Lie. And it's not the big lie that everybody is talking about, but it's another one that I think is pretty dangerous. We don't talk a whole lot about it, but we hear bits and pieces, and I wanted to take some time to put all this information together. It is an extended piece, which means it might be best enjoyed uh, in a few different reads or listens. So here's the big lie. Our political landscape is plagued by the disproven claim that the 2020 U.S. presidential election was won by a candidate other than President Biden. In the course of the two years since the election was held, we've heard a lot about what people call the big lie, and it's undermining the fabric of our nation. But there's another big lie saturating our culture that we are not talking enough about, and it's this. Quote, the reason people struggle with obesity is because they lack discipline. They should move more and eat less and follow the food pyramid as recommended by the Federal Department of Agriculture in order to stay lean and healthy, unquote. It may be true that activities like moving more and eating less can be supportive of achieving a lower weight on the scale, and some level of discipline is surely required to accomplish that. But there are other, less obvious, and much more sinister dynamics at play. Our cumulative lack of disciplined engagement with health and well-being philosophies, theories, and otherwise diets, they're not the reason we continue to struggle with being overweight. We are not the first humans on the earth. All through history, humanity has calculated the same math and metabolism in these same bodies, and yet they were not losing their citizens to obesity-related diseases at an epidemic rate. Did they have more discipline and self-control than we do? They didn't have a food pyramid, so how did they know how to eat the healthy way? And why did they all seem to get it so right when currently we are supersizing our collective participation in getting this thing so dangerously wrong? And that is the big lie that I'm writing about today. The sole reason we struggle with obesity is a lack of discipline. I disagree. 
This Rooted in Connection blog is about sharing perspectives, looking at our lives, and everything and everyone in them with fresh eyes. The blog is not about reciting articles, texts, studies, data, research, or science. You can, and you should, access your own authoritative sources. Rooted in Connection is simply about finding connection in a disconnected world. My hope is that you start your own journey into at least asking what your body has accumulated through today to to now be in its present state. Our physical bodies are the net result of all we've put into them, so they carry a lot of data. I've been asking myself questions about the human body in one form or another for four decades. And with each daily lamenting of something I ate or didn't, I bought into the big lie. It seduced me. I truly believed I just needed more discipline. I blamed and shamed myself silently, as many of us do, for always going back to sugar. In fact, the only things I recall trying to do better than learning to grieve properly were learning to diet properly and binge eat properly and diet again, eventually, and properly this time. I've lost well over 100 pounds in my lifetime. I do not have a discipline problem. The thwarting issue is that it has been the same 15 pounds that I always gain once I'm back in the arms of my reliable confidant, also known as sugar. On a positive note, this wavering journey I embarked on as a young girl is finally (laughs) starting to yield some clarity. At least my questions are leading me in a direction that's helping me understand my faithful but messy relationship with food. I have been a sugar lover since I can remember. If it could be melted or toasted or covered in sugar, brown sugar, powdered sugar, honey, syrup, or any other sugar, I went for it. My identification with love of all things sweet is something I've clung to in my adult life. My commitment to sugar has been erratic, but unflappable. I always go back. And in return, sugar has been loyal, providing me with lots of dopamine surges and many chances to obsess about this relationship and my own inability to leave it for good. Distractions can be a very effective coping mechanism in the short term. But long term, just like our grief, our guilty pleasures, they just await our return. They are so patient. So the unhealthy distractions over time, they'll just eventually pick right up where we left off as soon as we unlock that door. I knew sugar could make me obese, but I didn't realize that eating sugary foods on a regular basis could quite literally destroy my health little by little. And I also didn't realize where all the sugar hiding places were like ketchup and vitamin supplements and pasta. I just figured, as I did with my grief, it was another big bag of bullshit that I would have to carry on my back or my hips for my entire life. And since this is just how I am, I've had no real avenue to change it. I've been doing my best to manage my weight between states of sugar deprivation and sugary food binges that can last for weeks. Even in high school, I recall intentionally giving up sugar for Lent 
kind of a 1980s version of the cleanse, I guess. I've continued that tradition as an adult, but it's always so hard to abstain. And although I can succeed for the designated time period, I always go right back to sugar, my old pal. Insufficient discipline cannot be the only culprit in this public health crisis that is threatening to bankrupt our economy. I'm not at all interested in opening this topic to initiate a conversation about weight or weight loss, although I know I'm going to get slammed (laughs) with it. I'm actually bringing it up because I'm shocked at what I've been learning about sugar over the past couple of years and all of its disguises and really just the havoc that it's reaping on our humanity organ by organ. If the words diabetes, amputation, blindness, cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, and cancer don't get your attention, this post may not be for you. And in fact, this creates a great place to take a break. So if you need to go refresh your coffee, that's a great time to do it. Continuing on, my and welcome back, my interest originates from the humongous chasm of disconnect between the research and subsequent data that's available about what sugar, high fructose corn syrup, and other processed foods are doing to our bodies and our brains. Why hasn't the dissemination of research-supported statistics yet transformed our, and specifically my, relationship with food? Why can't I seem to develop a healthy, non-compulsive, non-obsessive relationship with sugar? By the way, there won't be a lot of answers here, just one that I came up with, um, and a lot of ideas. But if you have either, please share them in the comments. I'm asking for it. Um, So the simple answer to this question of why I can't seem to have this, just what I would consider a normal relationship with sugar, is the simple answer is because my brain's addicted. It's that simple. What never really landed for me until now is this. My body is consistently signaling to me from headaches and agitation to poor sleep, depression and tight pants, the same non-encrypted, non-password protected message that I have been secretly praying was an error all this time. And that is crystallized sugar and likely crystallized anything are not substances that this human body was built for. This includes sugar, flour, and all sugar substitutes. I've never had a problem dropping the 10 to 15 pounds I tended to gain when in seasons of not managing my relationship with sugar very well. Diet soda, sweeteners in my coffee, sweet but chemical-laden sugar-free creamers, and diets galore have basically just been a way of life. But whether I was in some sugar abstinence season for a week, a month, or a year, I could always lose the weight, but could not permanently say no thank you to sugar long term. And I think I'm starting to understand why. As a reminder, I do encourage you to do your own research. My role here is not to educate, but merely spark the conversation. My research has helped me identify what has been happening in my brain all of this time and why I just haven't been able to leave sugar alone. And if you're thinking, sugar's okay in moderation, (laughs) I'll stop you right there. And I'll say, there's nothing moderate about how much sugar I can ingest 
in one evening or one Netflix binge-a-thon. If moderation works for you, fantastic. You don't have a pickled nucleus accumbens like some of us. I studied behavioral neuroscience in college, and I became a pediatric ICU nurse over two decades ago. I consider myself to be somewhat knowledgeable about the body. I know a little bit about a little bit. And yet, until now, this concept hasn't stuck in a way that's helped me break the cycle of addiction. So let's talk about that. But first, let's take a minute and just understand what dopamine is. This is a real quick definition, and there is a link to this in the post as well. So dopamine is a type of neurotransmitter, and it's a chemical that's released in the brain that makes us feel good, basically. It's like a little bump of feel good after we do something, and our brain basically rewards us for doing that thing. So yeah, you can learn more about that. But I want to talk about the nucleus accumbens, and I don't want to lose you here. We're going to call it NA for short. The only thing I really want to make sure you understand is that there is a place in our brain called the nucleus accumbens, and there is a definition linked in the post. I'm going to call it NA, or maybe I'll still call it nucleus accumbens. I don't know. But it's it lights up and summons dopamine release when it's stimulated. So why is this important? Well, how does stimulation happen? That depends on the person. For me, it happens by eating a cookie or even thinking about one. Stimulation happens when I take that first sip of my favorite red wine. I get a little payoff. It happens when I start to make my Thanksgiving shopping list. My mouth literally waters. And it happens to all of us when we respond to notifications on our phones or check things off of our to-do list, dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. So it also happens when I'm watching TV and my brain's flow of unconscious presence is interrupted by a big advertisement that shows piping hot bread with melted butter on it. (laughs) Or the TV presents a full screen of perfectly roasted pizza That's never as good as it looks on the 90-inch screen image. It could be Dairy Queen commercial or baking show or really anything. My brain is so well-trained and engineered, just like the brains of Pavlov's dogs, that just the mere suggestion of sugar can light up my NA. And when I indulge in the craving, I enjoy the dopamine party in my brain, but simultaneously, As my neurons are dancing in dopamine, the part of my brain that controls judgment, which is the prefrontal cortex, by the way, also becomes paralyzed every time. This paralysis is what makes it so difficult for us to interrupt a bad choice, especially when it comes to substances. Dopamine is king and rules the day. Maybe this sounds familiar, or maybe you have no problem with portion control. If the latter best describes you, enjoy that. And if you have absolutely no degree of cravings for certain foods, sweet, fried, or otherwise, some other questions are starting to arise. These questions all stem from the fact that you're all getting your dopamine somewhere. So if you're not getting it from sugar, and good for you if you're not, uh, let's see if you know what stimulates your nucleus accumbens and floods your brain with this feel-good natural chemical. So these are just a couple of questions to throw out there. Again, if you if you don't have an issue with sugar, you may have uh, some other kind of addiction that's getting in your way. And the way you know it's getting in your way is because you keep trying not to do it and you keep doing it. 
Um, so here's a couple other questions that aren't related to diet. How much time do you spend on digital devices for non-work-related pleasure or distraction? How much of your day is spent thinking about how to get something you want? What amount of time do you give to sports and infotainment? How much of your energy goes into trying to control future circumstances and situations so they have the result you desire? How much of your life is spent time traveling in the past, regretting something you know you can't change? I do this all the time. And what percentage of your brain's energy is spent on thinking about how to stop doing the thing you don't want to do, implementing that plan to end the behavior, only to again abandon it, as you and I have done thousands of times. So here we get to the point about the nucleus accumbens. So as it turns out, the NA isn't so keen on discriminating between addictions, do your research in parentheses, but as much of the science is illustrated, our brains just want dopamine and they don't care what the source is. We could make three piles of white powder on a plate and each one of them could potentially scratch the dopamine itch by itself. If one is cocaine, one is sugar, one is processed flour, and we ingest any of those items, or even think about them, if like me, you have the NA number on speed dial, the same area of the nucleus accumbens of the brain lights up on MRI. And this is huge. And this is what I want everyone to hopefully hear. The nucleus accumbens does not care which substance or activity garners the dopamine surge, only that it does. So the brain can be quite crafty when smooth-talking us back into the kitchen at 8 p.m., when we swore to ourselves just 12 hours ago that we wouldn't go into the kitchen after 7. Information is empowering. Understanding the dopamine game means that we can stop focusing on our compulsions, sugar or digital or whatever they may be, and start to understand how we can best integrate this information. For me, the big aha moment came when I finally made the connection between sugar substitutes and sugar addiction. For decades, I have been erroneously looking at the number on a scale to measure my ability to control my sugar intake. By the way, and I quoted the statement, thank you, culture and society, for teaching me not to trust myself and how my body feels, and instead to rely on external factors so the world could exploit and profit from my dependence on the outside world, end quote. All the while, and especially during seasons when I was losing weight, I was still feeding my sugar addiction, not feeding it with calories, but with any stimulation. I had no idea. As soon as that sweet taste of a diet soda, keto peanut butter cup, or my favorite vanilla zero creamer hit my tongue, the NA in my brain was sounding the alarm. It screamed, winner, winner, keep dopamine coming at all costs. Do not let it stop. But I couldn't hear that screaming part of my brain because instead of checking in with my body, I was busy getting seduced by the part of my brain which would pull me with whatever narrative was necessary to eat or drink more, feed the addiction. Even if it was just that need for one more potato chip, which is full of seed oils, <laughs> vegetable oils, aka sugar, 
This battle continued raging in my brain until I eventually went back to the box of cookies and finished it off or the diet soda or the other edible food-like substance. (laughs) Thank you, Brian Johnson. Seeking relief from my withdrawal. Basically, I'm a junkie. I thought I needed more discipline. I bought the big lie. Darn, what a waste of time and resources. (laughs) So this is another place you can take a break if you want. Um, We're going into kind of summarizing this. So this extended blog post has been an invitation to open yourself up and ask some questions. If you have addiction in varying degrees to different things, as most of us do, if you don't, good for you, lucky, take a look at your environment. Take a look at what you're putting into your body and absorbing through your senses, all of them. We are literally the aggregate result of everything we take in. There's nothing complicated about that concept. But when we apply the new understanding, and for me that is, I am literally (laughs) gaslighting my nucleus accumbens with sugar substitutes, which is strengthening the dopamine sugar connection with every morsel. And since I've looked at all this information, I've basically identified three options for myself. One, continue to confuse my brain by training it to want something I refuse to give it and continuing to eat and drink sugary substitutes that are non-caloric but are dopamine drivers. Number two, drop the substitutes and just go for sugar in its whole state, enjoying a few high-quality treats very sparingly. Three, Give my brain the healing balm it has earned for over more than four decades. Turn off the demented reward system I have warped with my habits and simply cool that nucleus accumbens off for a while. As you may have guessed, I'm going for option number three. Now that I have this new information about what's happening in my brain, the first one is not an option for me, full stop. No more diet soda, no more sweet creamers in my coffee, no fake stuff, period. The second option, so lovely and admirable. Were it possible, I would love to choose this one and just enjoy a good dessert once in a while. (laughs) But alas, I've tried that and failed thousands of times. This may be a great option for some, but now that I have soaked my brain in sugar and dopamine for so long, It's just not a path that leads me to peace, which is where I belong. Option number three is extreme. I'm not even sure I can do it. What I am sure of, though, is when I keep these things out of my body, my mood is less variable. My cravings for sugar begin to fall away. I'm more alert. I sleep better. Not only do I feel more in control, but the natural chemistry of my body is able to realign itself after years of fighting against itself. I feel lighter, so I can at least commit to doing this today. And yes, I have cut out all sugar and sugar substitutes for a couple of weeks now. This is not a perfect map, but at least it feels like a direction that's more loving and less destructive to my brain and to my body. Nature is on my side with this one. But even if it weren't, I need only ask myself how I feel to know that it's having a huge positive impact on my well-being and health, as I also take back the control and stop depending on external forces to tell me how I feel. Whatever you do, 
or don't do, I urge you to seek some understanding about the role of politics in our obesity crisis. Challenge this big lie with every bite, every sip. We have everything and everyone to lose. And please check with your doctor before making changes to your diet. So thank you for joining this episode of The Healing Path. And literally, we are losing our humanity because we are all addicted to something. And, you know, addiction can have different definitions. For me, it means um, doing something that I've committed not to doing and just breaking my promise basically to myself, not usually to someone else, but I break my own promises, um, particularly around sugar. So it might not be sugar for you, but we are we are losing our citizens at an epidemic rate. And yes, it does take willpower. It does take um, you know, formalize some kind of um, work, you know, we, we need to exercise, we need to move our bodies, there's a lot of factors. Um, but I promise that from everything I've read and heard over the last, you know, three or four decades, um, it's not just discipline and willpower that's at, that's at work here. And that's why I say urging you to, you know, do your own research, but what's happening with our economy based on how sick people are getting we're we're in for we're in for a big um economic collapse if we don't get our arms around why we can't stop putting this stuff in our bodies i hope i haven't uh scared anybody off with all of the medical terms but you know information it is it's power and we need to understand these terms we need to understand that we go back into the pantry at eight o'clock, even though we said we wouldn't, because at the time that that dopamine is trying to be released, it paralyzes the free prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that goes, hey man, don't do that. You know, that's not good for you. And this can happen, sure, when we're drinking or when we're eating or any number of things that we know are not good for us. And we actually have tried to stop doing and we do them anyway. And then we wonder why, <laughs> We don't have confidence or we feel insecure or we don't have a high, you know, sort of self-esteem because when we're lying to ourselves, we're, we're not trustworthy. It's like we make sure we're honest on the job and in our relationships. But when it comes to our relationship with ourselves, at least I'm speaking for myself, uh, I've broken a lot of promises. So I'm fascinated by this. I am not looking to start, start a sh- shirt, <laughs> not looking to start a shit storm about weight and sugar and all those things. But I just felt like this impacted me so gravely that I just wanted to put it out there because it is part of healing. And if we're addicted to sugar or anything else, we can't even begin to deal with our grief. We're just going to be reactive like, you know, mice on a wheel. We're going to we're gonna do the thing so we can get the dopamine, do the thing and get the dopamine. And in the midst of that, you know, we're really hurting our bodies and we're really not dealing with our grief. So I did really want to share that with you today. And I look forward to hearing from you. I am partially kidding when I say I'm going to get slammed. But, you know, this is a hot topic. People don't like to approach it. I understand that. And this blog has nothing to do with weight or weight loss as much as it has to do with well-being and healing from trauma and loss and grief. So thank you so much for joining. And as always, let's try to stay present, stay grateful, and stay healing. And as always, I thank you so much for listening.